G'day and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler and it's a bumper edition this week. Now things are looking a bit snoozy in Australia, although plenty happening in the USA as usual, as well as the tragic fires in Greece. But then yesterday up pops the nine takeover of Fairfax, which is the biggest news in the media for years. And who best to talk to about that than our own Stephen Mayne. On the matter of Mr Trump, I gave my old friend Jonathan Payne a call. He's getting a bit gloomy about things because of the trade war and is now suggesting we could be in for stagflation, which is the dreaded combination of economic stagnation and inflation. So I thought I'd better ask him to expand on that. Tomorrow is the five by-elections, of which two really matter, Longman and Braddon. So I asked David Briggs of Galaxy, he does the news polls for The Australian, to give us a preview. Adrian Hart of Biz Oxford Economics expands on his prediction of a severe downturn in housing construction from earlier in the week. And Joe Masters of ANZ Economics brings us up to date on Wednesday's inflation data. And now here's Stephen Main to talk about the Fairfax 9 merger. Stephen, uh one of the things that occurred to me when I saw the news about Fairfax and uh, Nine merging is uh, why did it take so long? And, the, and I then looked at the share prices, and of course the reason is because uh, a few months ago Nine was smaller than Fairfax in market cap terms and uh, had a big pop-up at a share price after the half-yearly results and uh, became bigger. So, now, so then it's on top. That's right. Um, you can often use your shares as a currency, and, and nine shares having run up to two dollars fifty-two gave it a premium pricing. Fairfax shares had, had fallen back down to around seventy-seven, so nine could justify offering a twenty percent premium on those share prices. And interestingly, the the, the prices have narrowed today, so Fairfax up thirteen percent, nine down ten percent, reflecting the premium, the control premium, which gives the uh, Nine, the chocolates, which is the chair and CEO position. Um, so, yeah, nine is a takeover. They've got the name. The Fairfax name disappears. Um, and uh, it's going to have some big political and media implications. Um, uh, my impression has been that uh, Highwood and Falloon have been trying to sell the business for quite a while. Uh, do you think that they've undergone a semi-formal process? I doubt they've... Well, I'm not sure. I mean, whether they've gone to others in the market. I mean, this is the natural relationship because of Stan in particular. Stan has been a very successful video-on-demand business. They've got to know each other. They've worked well uh, together. Greg Highwood is ready to retire. He's a one-company CEO, um, and you often get CEOs after many years. They look to sell the business on the way out. So, uh, you know, he's he's ready to hand over. So I think it is a Fairfax, we're ready to be sold situation. And I think uh, Nine uh, saw their share price had got that high. They'd previously shunned the Fairfax business because of the legacy of print. They weren't interested in the legacy of print. And I think Fairfax have got the costs down in print so much and they've shown the success of Domain and Radio that that is attractive enough to get Nine over the line in terms of paying a, a premium for a, a, an old media business. And, and what, what do you think the implications are for media and for politics and so on? Well, I mean, having you know, Malcolm Turnbull coming out and endorsing the deal strongly today and, and Peter Costello, obviously a former a Liberal treasurer, uh, as the proposed chairman of the new business. Um, so I think it, there will be some politics about you know, diversity and um, you know, Peter Costello and his influence and, and loss of jobs. So I think you know, $50 million of savings and the statement in the document that the, the nine board will 
review the business, to reposition it for its digital future, that's pretty ominous for print. And I think there's a lot of nervous uh, journalists around about newsroom consolidation like we've seen in Perth where they've put together the West Australian with Channel 7 because they've got the common ownership over there. So I think you'll see quite a debate about political influence, loss of journalistic resources, mergers, cross-promotions, and, of course, the ACCC will do a formal investigation over 12 weeks because this is a deal that just could not have happened until the law was changed last year, getting rid of the two out of three rule because Fairfax will be a powerful player in radio, in television, and in print. And we've never really had a company like that because it was against the law um, since those Paul Keating media laws of the 1980s. Oh, indeed. So when they put uh, the West Australian together with Seven in Perth, did, did, uh, did it result in a lot of journalists' uh, redundancies? Like, do they do they share news stories then between the yeah? Between so it's a, it's a joint newsroom. It's a joint. Yes, newsroom. it's a joint newsroom. So so you know you can imagine that you think about Fairfax in Sydney and Melbourne that wherever you know nine and the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald are now, imagine a co-located future. So. Uh, and, you know, you would therefore imagine that uh, you would be writing, you know, doing some stories for TV and cross-promoting those on, on, on uh, in newspapers. I mean, I guess people talked about that as well when Fairfax bought Macquarie Radio. And we haven't seen too much overt connections, if you like, between 3RW2GB and uh, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. So uh, that will be a very interesting situation as to how they manage the, the 50 million in claim savings. But uh, you can under, understand the uncertainty amongst uh, many of the old school journalists. One interesting sideline is that Fairfax and News Corp recently announced that they were going to share printing. Uh, and also new, Nine and News have combined to, um, uh, a joint, to do a joint venture on a new uh, business TV channel called Your Money. Um, so, so separately, both Nine and Fairfax have kind of done deals with News Corp. What do you think will happen to them? Well, I think the uh, the News Corp newspaper Fairfax joint venture was probably one of the most important deals in terms of getting Nine over the line because it further reduces the costs, uh, uh, sort of the, the legacy problem with print. So I think that that's just a logical sharing of resources because news in particular had surplus capacity because Fairfax had done much more aggressive closures of uh, their major Sydney and Melbourne uh, print plants. So I think that deal obviously stays and, and makes sense and was attractive for Nine. The As for the joint venture between Nine and News, I mean, that's of a small scale. It's just around programming. And I think you would see less of those going forward because logically it would be uh, Nine working with its own partners at, uh, at Fairfax in terms of more programmatic uh, arrangements. Now, to talk about the markets, I'm joined now by my old friend Jonathan Payne and he's feeling a little bit apocalyptic. Here he is. Well, Jonathan, you've come back from, uh, I think, a week in Bali uh, feeling a bit apocalyptic, I think. Um, uh, you seem to be thinking that things are not going too well. Tell us, uh, tell us how you feel. Well, Alan, yes, it was a, an enjoyable time in Bali. And, uh, you know, I, we, I was there during a time when uh, one of the surfers told me they were seeing uh, some of the biggest waves in, in 20 years. So I, may, I think reflecting, uh, sitting on a beach... Uh, does provide one with some kind of perspective and perhaps 
kind of enabled me to, to put it all together uh, with respect to my, my fundamental views on markets. As you know, Alan, at the end of last year and certainly into early 2018, I highlighted my very strong conviction uh, that inflation in the United States, but in much of the developed world, uh, would rise much more sharply than the consensus at that time was anticipating. And I think the data uh, since that time has confirmed to me uh, that we're seeing uh, a very significant increase uh, in inflation. I've said, for example, that I think wage inflation in the United States is like a coiled spring, which I think is currently springing. And uh, if I look at all the data uh, in recent months, it would tend to suggest that um, the, the United States faces an almost perfect inflationary storm. And I do believe we're at an inflation inflection point uh, more latterly uh, we saw the IHS uh, market um, summary of uh, in manufacturing conditions in the United States. I, I just want to read uh, a comment from their report, which was just published a few days ago. Trade frictions have clearly become a major cause of concern, especially among manufacturers. Firms have become increasingly worried about the impact of tariff and trade wars on demand prices and supply chains. July saw the steepest rise in prices charged for goods and services yet recorded by the surveys as firms passed rising costs onto customers, in turn frequently linked to tariffs. What's more, supply chain delays also hit a record high amid rising shortages of key inputs, which is usually a harbinger of further price rises. Now, we all know, Alan, that we're about to see a second quarter GDP report from the United States uh, uh, this Friday. I think we'll see a fall in front of the decimal point. So the fundamental backdrop in the United States is very clear in my view. Number one, we have a very strong U.S. economy driven by, obviously, the stimulatory uh, tax cuts. Uh, in fact, I've described the U.S. economy as being on fire. I think we have a Fed that is pretty much on autopilot. And uh, at the beginning of the year, I said I thought the Fed would increase rates four times. That means we're going to have two more this year and into next. And so the Fed really has painted itself in a corner. It, it has to raise rates because of the obvious evidence of a strong economy accompanied by a rising inflation. And I think uh, markets need to kind of really recalibrate uh, all of their relative valuations uh, insofar as for more than a decade, Alan, uh, fund managers in particular have lived in this kind of cozy consensus of lower for longer. And we are at an inflection point now in terms of both inflation and also the monetary uh, policy cycle. But, you, and but, I, but Jonathan, you seem to also be predicting stagflation in 2019, not, uh, not continued growth. Yes. So this is where it gets, I think, rather interesting. We have this uh, rising inflation and the present-day uh, strength in the economy. However, the Fed therefore feels compelled to raise rates. We know from the shape of the U.S. yield curve, uh, which has been flattening, as you know, that the market is saying, wow, um, the Fed, you, you better kind of take it easy here, because by 2019, uh, the market is suggesting the U.S. economy could be slowing. So we have this kind of combination of rising inflation, but with an expectation of slowing growth next year. Now, as we know, uh, and, and Alan, you, you, you certainly go back long enough to remember 
those nasty, pernicious days of stagflation, namely rising inflation accompanied by uh, a slowdown in growth, if not a recession. Well, that was, in not... the, uh, that was in the 70s, and in fact, stagflation is poison for the market. There was a bear market for most, if not all, of the 70s. That's exactly right. Stagflation, in fact, is, 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 a, is a very uncomfortable uh, um, um, in, environment for, for equity markets. We've got rising cost pressures um, and obviously declining revenues. So, so that's a very uncomfortable reality. Look, I have recently in my, my weekly pain report have been highlighting the prospect of stagflation, and I, I've been very shy uh, of late to try to, to use that word because uh, I know how dangerous that word is. But everything I'm looking at now is beginning to paint the picture of stagflation over the horizon. Uh, whether that's kind of mid or late 2019, I'm not yet quite sure. But, Alan, this whole conversation and the economic environment we've just been describing is taking place at a time where we have massive disruptive influences coming through uh, in terms of uh, the escalation in the trade war between the United States and China uh, in particular. Now, we know full stop that protectionism and tariffs are in of themselves inflationary. So if we throw uh, a trade war and the obvious inflationary ramifications thereof into the mix of a very tight labor market, rising wage inflation, rising input costs, and the expectation of a slowing economy, you then add a third kind of factor into this perfect confluence uh, which is why I'm beginning to think we, we face a, 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 a perfect storm. Markets are not good at um, uh, looking at the kind of nonlinear uh, uh, extrapolations. For example, investors generally look at the recent past and they extrapolate in a linear fashion into the future. We saw that in 2006 and 2007. You know, analysts and economists couldn't get their heads round the, the simple reality uh, that the United States was going to go through a period of very massive dislocation because they'd seen the last five years, everything was happy and hunky-dory, and they failed to, to see the oncoming uh, almost depression in the United States. Right now, I think investors are failing to, to, to uh, uh, you know, understand that we are seeing a very different uh, change in terms of the, the economic environment. First and foremost, that inflation, which has been dormant for so long, is now rearing its ugly head. And we have that at the same time that we have the disruptor in chief, namely Donald Trump, in a de facto economic war with his great adversary, China. And I don't think Trump is going to take a backward step. And we, just before we went on air, Alan, you and I spoke of the significance of Steve Bannon, uh, I've often said that I believe he was the primary architect of Trump's victory, and Steve Bannon has repeatedly said uh, that the United States is at war with China, and we also know as we move towards the all-important midterm November elections in the United States, which I believe is a referendum on the Trump presidency, that anti-China talk, the so-called China-bashing uh, rhetoric from Trump is very, very popular with his base, particularly in those significant states that won him the election, namely Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So I don't see any reason why 
Trump, particularly that he now has a, a, a an effective trade war cabinet uh, with people such as Peter Navarro, who Alan we recall wrote the book in 2011, Death by China. There is no way uh, that uh, I think Trump, Trump is going to take a backward step. So I'm going to have to. Uh, I'm going to have to leave it there. <laughs> leave it there, Jonathan. Oh. Um, now we've run out of time, unfortunately, but I think you've made your point. I hope so, Alan. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. I appreciate it, Jonathan. Thank you. No, thank you, Alan. I'm joined now by David Briggs, the Managing Director of Galaxy Polls, and they do the news polls for News Corp. David, uh, obviously it's all about the by-elections on Saturday, um, and it appears that Longman and Braddon are the, one, are the two seats in, uh, that are really in, under contest. Do you, um, do you think it's possible that uh, the, uh, the Liberal National Party wins both of those? It's, uh, it's very possible. Uh, looking at these two seats, it, it, it's interesting, because there's been no set swing in the Section 44 by-elections. So we've got no real compass to go by. Um, Barnaby Joyce enjoyed 7% swing, and John Alexander in Benelong almost 5 percentage points against him. So things like this make these uh, by-elections a little tricky. When we look at uh, both Longman and Braddon, we actually see there's incredibly good reasons that uh, Labour should uh, retain both seats, but there's also very good reasons for the Liberal or LNP to, to win both as well. So just first looking at Longman, um, we found that in our state breakdown for Queensland, uh, which is a news poll survey that we do, uh, that in fact um, Labour support in Queensland has increased from a historic low of 30.9% in the last election to around 38%. Now, that should give Susan Lamb a sufficient buffer to retain the seat. But the problem that we found in the poll that we did for the Daily Telegraph recently was there's a relatively high level of dissatisfaction with Susan Lamb within the electorate, and that's going to vote against her. And what about, um, one, Brand- what about, what about One Nation um, preferences the, there? Yeah. The, the One Nation vote is expected to be high. Um, the, the seat of Longman comprises uh, two state electorates, Pumice Stone and Glasshouse. In both of these seats, One Nation picked up 23% of the primary vote at the last election. Now, interestingly, in Pumice Stone... The One Nation candidate preferenced the LNP, and 71.6% of preferences went to the LNP. In Glasshouse, the One Nation candidate preferenced Labour ahead of the LNP, and yet 62% of preferences went to the LNP. So I, uh, my, my expectation is a very high proportion of One Nation uh, preferences will be directed to the LNP. And in our poll, we found about 18% of voters in uh, Longman were likely to vote for One Nation in this uh, forthcoming election. And so that removes, does it, Susan Lamb's buffer? Potentially, that could remove the buffer. And don't forget that, in fact, it was One Nation preferences that got Susan Lamb over the line in 2016 because One Nation preferenced Labour ahead of the sitting member, Wyatt Roy, and 56% of the preferences flowed to Labour at the 2016 election, which got Susan Lamb over the line. That is not going to happen on Saturday. So let's talk about Braddon. Um, what are the, what's the polling saying there? The polling is showing that Braddon is uh, line ball. It's, uh, our two-party preferred there is 50-50. Uh, I, I mentioned before about the reasons why 
uh, Justine Key will be returned and the other reasons why she may not be. Now, for Justine Key, she does have a, a relatively high level of satisfaction among voters in the seat. 49% were satisfied in our poll versus 38% dissatisfied. And in a tight election, that sort of grassroots support might be enough to get her over the line. Now, to, to in conflict with that is that the state election for Tasmania... Uh, the Liberals actually picked up 56% of the primary vote against Labour's 27%. Now, if voters on Saturday voted in a similar way uh, to that state election, uh, then uh, that would see uh, the Liberal candidate elected. There was an interesting column from uh, Nikki Sava the other day which, which said that um, if the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, can keep Longman and Braddon, which would, it would be a historic once-in-a-century feat because um, no governments actually retain um, seats during by-elections or haven't done. Uh, I can't remember since when. It's a long time anyway. Um, so, obviously, if he pulls that off, it's a big win. But if he doesn't uh, and Labor wins, that helps ensure that Bill Shorten s uh, stays opposition leader. Um, is, that right. a, is that a reasonable thing in the sense that Bill Shorten is a, a, a negative for the, um, the Labor Party, as your polling suggests? De definitely, Alan. Uh, what we found in the poll was that uh, the two-party preferred in Braddon was 50-50. We also asked the question, which was, if uh, Anthony Albanese was leading the Labour Party, how would you vote? And what we found was that there was an increase in the Labour support, so the two-party preferred lifted from 50-50 to 53-47 to Labour. Now, under those circumstances, that would represent an easy win to Labour. The same happened in Longman. Our two-party preferred in the poll suggested that the LNP is ahead 51 to 49. That's very close still. However, uh, if when the respondents were asked, if Anthony Albanese was leader of the Labour Party, how would you vote? And again, he came back to 53-47 for Labour. And so in both seats, if there is a possibility that Labour loses on Saturday, our polling suggests that the result would have not have been in doubt if Anthony Albanese had been leader of the Labour Party. And can you, can you extrapolate those results to the national scene? Um, it, it's hard to, although uh, I recall in uh, 2013 when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, and at the time we asked the question, um, how would you vote if Kevin Rudd was leading the Labour Party? And what we suggested at that time was that the uh, Labour vote would increase by six percentage point under uh, Gillard from 32% to 38 What happened was, uh, after Kevin Rudd became leader, in the very first poll after uh, the coup, we found Labour support was up to 38%. So if it means that uh, Anthony Albanese across the board is worth a three percentage point increase to uh, Labour, then given that Labour are already ahead in our news poll, in our national news poll, it's 51.49 to Labour, then uh, the uh, uh, installation of uh, Anthony Albanese's Labour leader will be likely to uh, increase their buffer ahead of the next election. So interesting times. We'll all be, uh, we'll all be watching the, the by-elections very closely. Thanks very much, David. My pleasure, Alan. joined now by Adrian Hart of Biz Oxford Economics, used to be called Biz Shrapnel, and he had a report out this week about construction, which he says is turning down and could be a drag on the economy. So let's hear from Adrian. Well, Adrian, obviously the headlines around your report on construction this week were that, you know, you're, you're looking at a big slowdown 
that will be a drag on the economy. Um, tell us what's behind that. Well, in the residential market, which has been growing very, very strongly over the last few years, uh, a lot of that demand has been driven by investors. Uh, we've seen very strong growth in the apartment part of the market, the high-density residential. Um, that peaked at about 70,000 uh, dwelling starts a, a couple of years ago, and it's been easing a little bit. But over the next two years, we see that really starting to crunch as investors are pulling away from the market. So it was investors that drove it up but isn't, uh, a uh, lot. But isn't what's driving investors um, the high level of immigration? I mean, don't you think that um, underlying demand will continue to be strong because of population growth? Oh, certainly. You know, we've, we, you know, when we understand these markets, we try and understand that underlying demand. And unfortunately, you know, we move above and below that underlying demand figure. Now, currently, when you look at net overseas migration and all the drivers of population growth, we estimate that uh, we need about 197,000 dwellings to start every year just to house that demand over, over time. Now, we've been doing about 220 to 230,000 starts per annum over the last few years, and that's really eaten into uh, an undersupply that had built up over many years. Uh, but we believe over the next couple of years, we'll probably dip below that underlying demand figure as you say, you can't go too far below it because otherwise it just means that we need to be building more again in future and start another cycle. So the actual trough that we're talking about, about 171,000 dwellings, is actually very high in a historical perspective. And, you know, we certainly don't want to go back to the days of, you know, 2008, 2009, when we did 134,000 dwellings nationally. But I suppose the point is that cycles do tend to undershoot and overshoot. And, yeah. that, and that what you're talking about with investors is that they are motivated not simply by calculations of demand, but also by the ability to borrow and by tax deductions and so on. And so do, are you saying that it's possible that the crunch on investment borrowing might lead to an undersupply, a, a bigger fall in construction than, might, than you might have thought? That's certainly the risk. I mean, when we, when we understand construction markets and investment, uh, and certainly the broader economy, we don't believe the economy is ever in equilibrium. We're always swinging up or, or passing by, you know, high or low and, and gravitating towards that equilibrium, but often we overshoot and undershoot. And the reason for that is asymmetric information, you know, people making decisions in an imperfect world. And often we see a lot of supply come on in markets uh, over a period of time, and just as easily you can get quite a significant drop-off again. It takes time for the information to, to filter through to investors where the opportunities are. And certainly at the moment, what we're seeing is that investors are pulling out of the market because of uh, tougher lending restrictions, uh, other conditions being placed on foreign and domestic uh, investors. And also we're looking at sort of stagnating prices and we can't underestimate the impact of, of capital growth and prices as a, as a driver of investment decisions as well. I mean, two years ago, we were seeing very strong growth in, in uh, house prices, uh, but now we're seeing that sort of stagnation and that sort of sends a bit of a price signal to investors as well. So when you say that it could be a drag on the economy, the question, I guess, is how much of a drag? And, and when you sit down with your colleagues, 
who look at other parts of the economy, you, you obviously focus on construction. Mm. Um, do do you together come up with a forecast of a recession? No, we don't really come up with a forecast of a recession, and and the reason for that is that often the recession result comes because all of our investment markets are going down simultaneously. Just like during the booms, when we get simultaneous increases across the board, um, we don't see that simultaneous downturn. We're, We're lucky in the moment in that this residential downturn will be cushioned to some extent by rising non-residential building activity as well as rising engineering construction. That's where a lot of the investment in infrastructure, particularly publicly funded infrastructure, is coming through. Now, the downturn in residential were happening at a time when other sectors were also pulling out, then we'd be a lot more concerned. But what we tend to find is that these cycles uh, in construction uh, when they're unsynchronized, they tend to leave the economy just bubbling along at a perhaps a below trend rate of growth, but certainly not a recession. Now for a quick chat about Wednesday's CPI, here's Joe Masters from ANZ. Joe, a bit uh, weaker CPI yesterday than expected. Um, Does it change your view about anything? Look, absolutely not. The headline number was a little bit weaker than expected. A part of that reflected uh, lower than expected fruit and vegetable prices. Um, But we did see, um, in an annual sense, headline inflation accelerate to 2.1%. Probably the real focus, though, was on core inflation, which was a bit weaker, showed some actual deceleration in prices. Not enough to change our view about the RBA, but perhaps disappointing in a world where we're looking for or hoping for some acceleration in inflation. But it is astonishing, isn't it? At this point in the cycle, we've got inflation decelerating. That's incredible. Look, it's certainly very unusual. Uh, We've actually got um, quite solid growth, some acceleration in growth, in fact, and the economy running above 3%, but very weak inflation. Part of that reflects uh, ongoing retail price deflation. Uh, So we're seeing the prices for things like clothing and furnishing and homewares fall, uh, which does weigh on inflation, but ultimately, of course, is quite good for household spending. Do you think we'll get to Christmas next year, 2019, with the cash rate at 1.5%? Uh, look, we don't. We're looking for the RBA to raise rates uh, through the second half of 2019. We think that inflation uh, is going to pick up. It's going to be very, very gradual, uh, but we are looking for core inflation to get from 1.9% in uh, Q2 in the, in the most recent data to about 2.1% by the end of next year. And we think that'll be enough for the RBA just to take out some of that stimulus that's in the system. Happy birthday, Sir Michael Jagger. Here's an appropriate number for these times from the Stones. Give me shelter, which may well be the best rock song ever.
That's it for Talking Finance. Have a great week and I'll talk to you next week.